Welcome to another episode of Across the Aisle. I am former state senator Bobby Zirkin, and I am very proud and honored to be here with my former colleague, my good friend for way too many years, Delegate Dan Morheim, Dr. Delegate Dan Morheim, served in the Maryland General Assembly for decades, uh, was at the time, at some point in time, you were the only doctor, the only physician in the entire Maryland General Assembly. Uh, at there was a period. I, thank you, Bob. I think it was. I've, I think I can claim this much. I've, I'm the longest serving physician in the history of the Maryland General Assembly. No question about that. And oh, that's good. Clearly, the best. Thank uh, you. Physician thank uh, you. member of the General Assembly. We had uh, Andy Harris for a little while, but thankfully he went on, and now he's screwing up the country. But whatever. So uh, we are here to talk about lots of things, but importantly, crime. Um, and which I know is a little strange because you're not a lawyer, you're not a police officer, but you are a physician, and you had have had for many years, you know, a very specific kind of perspective based on your healthcare um, training. Well, since you brought a perspective, let me tell a little perspective joke story. And the Orioles are doing great. So it's a baseball one. And there's three kinds of umpires. And they ask the umpires how they call balls and strikes. It's about perspective. And they ask the subject of umpire how he calls balls and strikes. He says, well, I calls them as I sees them. And they ask the object of umpire how he calls balls and strikes. And he says, I calls them as they are. And they ask the existential umpire how he calls balls and strikes. And he says, well, they ain't nothing till I calls them. So... That's perspective, and your perspective is as a lawyer, but my perspective is my main job of my life, 40 plus years as an ER doctor. And I worked at Franklin Square's department chair for 13 years, and then moved, when I got elected in 1994, first of 24 years in the General Assembly, moved over to Sinai Hospital, which is a level two trauma center in the middle of Baltimore City. Also as a volunteer physician uh, at the homeless clinic in downtown Baltimore for three years and worked on Navo Indian Reservation and so forth. So my perspective on this comes from taking care of patients. And uh, the first bill I put in on substance abuse issues was, I think, 1996 or 7. Um, not because I had some great insight, but I just saw what my patients were coming in with. So for 24 years, my life was three months in the General Assembly and eight months, nine months working ER shifts. And the ER is puts an immediate... You could just tell what's going on in the community right away because it comes in there first. Right. And I saw such a rise of substance abuse, not just alcohol and tobacco, which are devastating legal addictions, but I started seeing all the illegal addictions. And my patients um, didn't know that I was in politics or cared, and I would just talk to them. And in the doctor-patient setting, mm -hmm. you can ask people all sorts of questions, and I would ask people, how'd you get started on drugs? Um, you know, What's your life like at home? Uh, you know, have you ever been arrested? Tell me about your time in jail. And I've talked to people from street level dealing um, and users all the way up to major dealers who told me how their entire operations worked. And uh, if I can share one anecdote from yeah. the homeless clinic, it was a guy who'd been in jail for um, about 20 something years. Went in when he was in his late 20s, he was now in his early 50s, he was getting a physical exam uh, there to, to go into the halfway house and his parole. That that took about a minute. He was in great shape. He pumped a lot of iron, <laughs> and uh, he's kind of slightly terrifying guy. I, I remember you from 1994, not so in good shape. I don't I, I, Bobby, you have inspired me to get into good shape, and <laughs> I, I I do work out and run Marathon regularly. Run and we'll get into that later. Yeah, on. yeah, it's important. We're talking drugs. Go ahead. So, um, 
I said, uh, tell me about your business. And he told me about, you know, duffel bags of, of drugs coming into warehouses where he had people with no clothes on, of course, uh, breaking them down into small bags and then distributing all up and down from D.C. to southern Jersey and how he got the drugs out there to the street corners, maintained uh, the turf on the street corners, ordering different kinds of crimes. He, he didn't use drugs himself. Right. Uh, particularly. And so I, and so I said, uh, well, what were you making? I mean, what were you personally taking home as the kingpin of this thing? And he said, uh, $25,000 a week tax-free in $1990. Wow. And I said, where's the money? And this guy was, if you saw the wire, he was like Stringer Bell, except he lived. And I said, where's the money? He said, well, my family's, you know, pretty comfortable. And when I get out of all of this, I'll, I said, you'll be 58 or something. Was it worth it? You spent most of your adult years in jail. He said, and he shrugged, you know, he just couldn't answer. He said, I don't know. But it was the only thing I could do as a young, uh, you know, kid in Baltimore. Um, you know, and I got some petty How did arrest. he get into it? Was he, he brought was, into the trade by Well, somebody he else? had a very disruptive home life, as right. a lot of these people do generationally. I mean, there's people I took care of and say, tell me about your lives. They tell me about their lives. And the dialogue in my head is, gee, if that was my life, I might be using drugs too. Right. I mean, horrible situations. And he had some petty arrest, which closed the doors to employment, housing, and education. Um, because whenever he applied for a job, he said they would just see that, you know, some misdemeanor thing and they'd throw it away. And so the only thing open was, was getting involved in the, the drug trade. And the money was colossal. The risks were great. But he was a very talented businessman. He could have been Warren Buffett. I mean, he could have been any great entrepreneur. But this was what was open. When you calculate the amount of money involved, and let's talk about the money, there are about... That's an extraordinary amount. That you just well, 30 to 50. There are 30 to 50,000 daily users in the greater Baltimore metropolitan area, okay? okay? There's more users on weekends and stuff. Average cost, and I would ask my patients, how much does it cost you? you know, 10, 20, 50, $200 a day, um, and somewhere in that range. Um, but if you multiply, say $50 a day, but we can play with the numbers, times 365 days a year, that adds up to over $550 million a year spent in the Baltimore metro area just to buy the drugs. It doesn't count any social costs, innocent, you know, crime victims, uh, uh, the health consequences, hepatitis and AIDS, disruption to communities, disruption to businesses, disruption to families, you know, jail costs, the legal system, just to buy the drugs. Maryland, a small state, probably a billion dollars a year. And where does that money go? Ultimately, it goes to the source of where the drugs come from, which are drug cartels overseas and terrorist organizations like right. I ISIS and Al-Qaeda that specifically go out, by the way, and get, um, uh, find areas where they grow um, opioids in the Far East or cocaine in South America so that they can, so we're, we're shipping huge tons of money, huge amounts of money to these organizations that destroy us from the outside, perpetuating a policy called the war on drugs that's killing us from the inside. And it clearly hasn't worked. We're hardly, I'm not for substance abuse, let me be clear. Um, but the policies we have clearly aren't working. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this crime and overdose death spiral that we've been in. All right. So we're here. So everybody acknowledges that this is an issue. I mean, you are, you come at from, from a healthcare perspective, but we spent, you know, a lot of years down in the General Assembly trying to figure this out, trying to, and I don't think they have at this point in time, right? I mean, like, it's, no. I don't think anybody's figured it all out pretty particularly well, but Baltimore in particular, 
really hasn't because quick you know we're we are close to the murder capital of the world and but for bad shooters, we would be the murder capital of the world. I mean, you have and a very good trauma system <laughs> saved a lot of lives. Tra- right, oh, that's right. A great trauma system that saved lives and people that can't shoot straight. Apparently, because you have thousands of non-fatal shootings and hundreds of fatal shootings every year. Those are the people I would see working shifts in the emergency room. So I did in one one of my last years and got a ton of grief for it. Was I had this you know marathon hearing on the crime in Baltimore City and what the hell were we going to do about it? I, invited everybody to come in and share their perspective because I just wanted to hear what everybody had to say. And drugs was a big part of it. And the solutions we, you know, we, we threw, you know, put a lot of money into safe streets and we gave money, more money to, for drug treatment programs. We did this, we did that, we did the other thing. And it was like, first of all, it was very political. So anything you did that was like even remotely putting people in jail for violent crimes, you got accused of all kinds of things. And if you went too soft on this, you got accused of being soft in crime. It was very political. We tried to fight through that came up with whatever we came up with, which probably, quite frankly, hasn't worked either. So I guess I'll throw it back to you. What do you do? You make very, a lot of good points. So first, I think yeah, like, like any problem that a person has, you first have to really recognize that this is the problem. And then there was a hearing in Annapolis, and anybody that wants to see it, call me, email me, I'll send you the videotape. Actually, you were testifying, and next to you was on a bill, which I supported, by the way, which was tougher on violent crime. That was the bill. So I, at the same time that I was for decrim- decriminalizing and offering more aggressive treatment on the front end, when people commit violent crimes, and I talked to people who committed, told me about the multiple murders they committed and the other violent crimes, those people have to be put away for public safety. Right. Sorry, they just have to be. I think that's, but, the, I think that's the sweet spot, what you just said. But uh, to say, but it, go say, you know, you were talking yeah. here across the aisle. Yeah. Go say that to the quote left side of the aisle and see see the I, names. I did. That you I, get people had a hard time <laughs> pigeonholing me because I was, you know, we can get to some of those other legal issues and bail reform, which you and I generally agreed on. But um, I asked Scott Schellenberger in that hearing, and it's on tape. Baltimore County State's Attorney, Mr. Schellenberger, how much crime in Baltimore County is due to drugs? His answer: eighty-five percent. Next to him, Major Byron Conaway of Baltimore, major, uh, major in Baltimore City Police, how much crime in Baltimore City is due to drugs? He said 90%, right. upwards of 90%. Well, if it's, if it's that much, why aren't we dealing with the drug issue? Not that we're going to solve it overnight, but can right. we at least decompress it? And one of the strategies that I advocated, which is beginning to happen, is all people with substance use disorder end up in emergency rooms sooner or later. 100% of them show up, whether it's you know, it's not necessarily because they're there saying, I'm an addict, I need dr- treatment, but lacerations, sprains, coughs, nosebleeds, minor trauma, major trauma. If you came into the emergency room, and I know your brother's an ER doctor, and he and I have talked about this because we both have that in common. If you came in with a heart attack and I, you know, needed a cardiologist, I can get it. If you came in with an orthopedic injury that I could treat, I would treat it. But if I need an orthopedist, I can get an orthopedist at three in the morning. You come with substance abuse, substance use disorder issues, I, I give you a sheet of paper with a bunch of phone numbers on it. We need counselors in emergency departments 24-7, 365, or at least available, if not actually physically there, to deal with that. Because the doctors, nurses, physicians assistants, pharmacists who are in emergency rooms, we, we can readily identify the people with substance abuse disorder. And I would ask those people also, you know, how much do you spend? That's, I knew the market of the day, it was $30, $50, $200 a day. Have you ever tried to get into treatment? Yes and no. Um, what do you do to get the money? And that's where it really gets difficult. A lot of petty theft that never gets reported. Grandma's clock radio disappears. 
dad's wallet's $20, $40 lighter, you know, and then petty crime working way up. And of course, dealing. One of the things that it's, it's like the Amway, the pyramid scheme of addiction. If I'm a substance abuser, I want to get my friend Bobby buying for me. That's how I make the marginal difference to sustain my habit. So every time you take a person out of substance abuse, you're actually reducing the temptation for others because they have vested interest in getting more substance abusers. So treatment on demand in emergency room available so 24 seven 365 so is one big step. Why can't and they, and they're all they're all they all come there 24 and emergency department open 24 7 365 they're well lit they're safe and secure you can deal with the medical somatic issues they're on bus routes and we and I've tried very hard to get the hospitals to step up some have so you're a bit you have drug treatment facilities essentially drug treatment programs facilities at the hospital campuses, right then and there right then and there so you can move from the emergency room over there exactly why can't they just call I mean you know Gaudenzi is here for example or yeah. or right turn used to be, I don't think they're around anymore, but, but Gaudenzia, for example, why can't the, I mean, I understand that it's, I mean, places like that will come and pick up patients and so forth, but doesn't it require them to actually say, I want this? I mean, you can't, you can't force them there. You're right. You can't, but, um, and, and many will look, no one's that naive that a hundred percent of these people are going to go or become, go through the program or, or become sober taxpaying citizens. But if you get a substance abuser, um, uh, today is what, let's say Wednesday, right? Today's Wednesday. If, if, uh, you get a substance use person, uh, into treatment and they last for four days, at least for those four days, they're not committing 50 to $200 worth of crime. If they go for three months or six months and there's going to be relapses as there are with medical diseases, people with asthma, congestive heart failure, diabetes have, you know, good, healthier times. They sometimes do things or for other reasons out of their control, they relapse. We treat them. We don't condemn them because they relapse. So for, at least for the period of time, uh, these people would not be committing the antisocial behaviors that the rest of us in society and their own communities and families at risk. So it decompresses. It doesn't solve the, right. any problems. But let's say the, the 30 to 40,000 substance uh, use disorder people in the Baltimore area, we got 10,000 into treatment tomorrow. That's actually possible if we could coordinate the hospitals and the payment system and the regulatory scheme, and that's where a lot of the problems are, all at once, and, and make a commitment to this, you'd overnight decompress, to some degree, the criminal justice and the healthcare system. 10,000 to 40,000 is a very doable number. If you got 20,000, it'd be even better. And you're right, not everybody's going to go into treatment at that moment. Right. So, I mean, there are spaces available, though, for these folks. Are you saying, I mean, is, is, this, is this a funding issue where you essentially need to start paying for them, say, look, we're going to give you free, you know, the taxpayers are going to pay for your drug treatment because, you know, Gaudenzia, for example, I'm just starting to bring them up. I just know a lot about them. No, they're good. I they're, like Gaudenzia. Right, they're yeah. good. And they have beds available. It's not like they're like overflowing. They do have beds available and they want more. You know, it's a complicated payment system and how you are allowed to have certain numbers of beds and so forth. But like, it's not like there aren't beds that are available for, for people for drug treatment. Is it just It's a whole it? series of logistical steps. But look, when I discharge people from the emergency room, let's say regular, non-effective people, and I say, please call your doctor tomorrow and make an appointment. How many, what percentage of them do you think do that? You know, so why don't you try and lose weight? Why don't you try and stop smoking? Could you start a basic exercise program and walk, you know, half a block a day? You know, very few follow up. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to get all these things done for people who aren't compelled to, you know when you when you discharge a person with substance use disorder from the emergency room they walk out the door the first their thing they think is not 
how do I get into treatment? It's like, how do I get more right, drugs? How do I get more drugs? And so it takes a whole system approach. And we have not made that level of commitment to get all these players together. The hospital financing system. Hospitals have space. They could, e not easily, but they could set up you know, a separate ward or build a building. They build right. buildings all the time for cancer centers and for orthopedics and for pediatrics. That's great. I love that. Thank you. But they should do one that's, you know, and some hospitals uh, have that. But What's they're a good not, example? They're not, well, there is no great example, but bit by bit, more and more hospitals are having um, what they're calling basically peer counselors in emergency rooms most of the time so that if someone is there with a, a disorder, and it might be a laceration, because I mean, they broke a window to, you know, in your car to steal your briefcase they saw there right. or rip the car radio out of your car. And, and they have a cut. You, you just dated yourself really bad. I know, you know I know, right? I, I know that. I don't think people steal car radios anymore. <laughs> you left your cell phone on the seat of your there car you accidentally, yeah, and they said, sure there it is, there thing. it is, it's a cell phone. <laughs> what was that um, thing they put in the wheel that, that stopped your wheel? Do you remember that? that oh, yeah. Like Mojack or something. Well, anyway, um, so here's one of the other dynamics of emergency medicine. Way. When I put the final diagnosis on the chart, it says laceration form. It could be laceration from breaking and entering. It could be laceration because you have you, you woodwork in your basement. Um, you know you got a you got a cut on your arm when you were opening a can of food. Um, it doesn't say laceration. That's what goes into the public health and the information data system. It doesn't say laceration secondary to substance abuse because we don't put that on the final diagnosis. Sprained ankle was it uh, playing soccer uh, with your kids or basketball in your case? Or was it because you were running from a bad drug deal and the, and the bad, other guys were chasing you to get you off the corner? It shows up the same medically. So when you start looking at a lot of these things more in depth, um, did some informal studies in a few of a few hundred patients who had, didn't have insurance, this is before Medicaid reform, 90%, 80% who didn't have insurance, it was substance abuse. But it doesn't show up as a final diagnosis on the chart, so it doesn't get into the public health information database. Okay. So there are a lot of steps starting with that. But since all these people end up in emergency rooms sooner or later, that's a focus. You don't have to go out and get them. They're coming to you. Take them at that moment. And some will proceed and some won't. But that would be a big step forward. Okay. So and getting all that aligned. On, on demand I mean, I like to have Gaudenzia, hospitals. you know, set up shop in the emergency room or Gaudenzia equivalents. Okay. That's so one. treatment on demand in the emergency rooms. Yeah. You've also been an advocate over the years for decriminalization. Yeah. Um, as you and I work together on decriminalization of marijuana, which Maryland's about to legalize it, which I have some mixed emotions about, even though I think it's the right thing to do. I, I do think there are some warning signs for it. Um, but putting that aside, maybe we can talk about that too. But you've also been um, kind of, we're very much out in front in Maryland, first one and the loudest one and the most educated voice about what you call, I guess, safe injection use sites or yeah. safe... Um, which you brought down, that was an idea from Canada, I think, if I recall correctly. Correct. Why don't you talk about that? And I, I do want to discuss that a little bit because that's another kind of big ticket issue that you were pushing in Maryland. Haven't done it yet, but uh, what, tell me about it. Actually, I was the first state legislator in the United States to introduce that. And it's not a panacea, but for the most hardcore people, based on the data, and a lot of this data was from Canada and Europe and, and analyzed by the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. It gets sort of the most 
difficult people into some kind of treatment program, or at least they're not back and tell people what it is. Safe consumption site is a place where a, a user and, and a, who uses injectable drugs goes. It, it's a nice, clean place. They have little cubbies. There's always a rescuer present, which is important because there have been zero overdose deaths in these places, which are now happening, by the way, not when I first put it in the bill. There were none in the United States, but now it's legal in Rhode Island. They're in Philadelphia and New York City, and they've been wow. operating in Canada. So step one is no deaths. I mean, the, the deaths from overdoses cuts across all demographics, all ages, and uh, all geographies and all racial ethnic groups. So first of all, you can't fix an addict who's dead. You've got to save them. Um, so they also have a clean place to, to shoot up, to put it directly. Um, and they have safe, clean needles, so there's no discarded needles. If, if they overdose, there's a rescuer present, and that's why there's no overdose death. But the other thing that starts to happen is, um, and they might come there, the drugs are not supplied by the facility. They have to bring their own drugs in. Um, so that you reduce disease, you reduce discarded needles on the street. But the other thing that happens is people start getting uh, connected to the treatment center, which always, to the, to the safe injection sites, which always have a treatment center associated with it. And so they come in from time to time to time and finally says, somebody says, Bobby, you know, you're here regularly. How about we discuss treatment and we get you into the treatment program? So they have a very good record treatment. Let me digress to a study that uh, is sort of iconic. It's called the RAT study. I'll bring it back to supervised consumption facilities where this, the iconic study that we're told, a rat is put in a cage and there's two levers, one of drugs and one of food, and the rat keeps hitting the drug lever till it overdoses and dies. That experiment was repeated, and I asked for anybody who wants, I actually have the data on this experiment because I always, I'm sharing you all the source material, the Schellenberger quote in this too. He created Rat Park, everything rats like, other rats, rat sex, cheese, tunnels, games. The levers were there. Uh, the drug lever was there. Very few rats use the drug lever. So the, the idea is that the opposite of addiction is not just sobriety, it's connection. Look, you and I have stress in our lives. We're not substance abusers. You know, it's like I was telling you, some of these people tell me about their lives. I'm thinking in my head, I, that was my life. I might be tempted as well. So what starts to happen in a safe consumption site is the user gets connected with somebody who says, you know, we have a relationship now, and maybe we can get you into treatment. So they have a very high rate of Is that uh, coupled with, um, with decriminalization of all drugs? No, it, it could be. But I, so look, decriminalization is a separate topic. Supervised consumption facilities, which has been continued uh, in, in, to be introduced to the Maryland General Assembly every year after I left. Very good lead sponsors, the chair of the health committee in the House, Jocelyn Pena-Melnick, terrific, and our state senator, Shelley Hedelman, in the Senate. And uh, I think eventually it will happen. But like many good bills, saying in Annapolis, as we know, bad bills pass in 90 days, good bills take years. It takes time uh, to get people around. It's not opium dens. By the way, there are lots of protections in the bill. It's, you know, all, there were only six in the state. They'd be closely monitored. They'd have well, to be zoning you. requirements right. and all that so stuff. Let so let me ask you a couple of the details yeah. of it. Because I think, you know, I, I certainly, I mean, I remember one of my, our first year together, I remember the first big fight I remember getting involved in, and I didn't even be perfectly honest, didn't really know what a group home was at the time. I was only 25 and it was not part of my world experience. But when one got put into a neighborhood, it certainly drove, you know, like people mad. Mm -hmm. You put a building somewhere where people are coming in for the express purpose of shooting heroin. I, I imagine that has to be in remote areas or, I mean, that doesn't seem to work though, because if you're trying to get a, you know, a population 
that needs to be where the population is. That's going to drive some people crazy in terms of a the neighborhood, but also like I think of hypotheticals. Like I'm, you know, I don't know. There's innumerable numbers of them. So now it's illegal to have the drug, but if you walk, you know, kind of through the magic line, then you're then you're illegal. Then they can't you can't be arrested for it. You can't be, right. Is that all, all good point? So so first of all, in the bill, it had to meet local local uh, zoning and uh, go through local health departments to be cited. So it's not just going to suddenly appear in your neighborhood. There will only be six of them statewide, all closely monitored and regulated. And there's a bunch of details in the bill about that. Yes, you're right um, uh, that uh, the person coming in, police could theoretically come in and address and arrest them for possession. Uh, but uh, in the other places where this has happened, the police have learned that this has actually been supportive of public safety, not anti-public safety. And when users go into a safe place, they're not shooting up in you know remote locations or in a McDonald's bathroom. They're not overdosing in these places. So it actually, the police have been, uh, have come around in the locations where they've worked and said, this actually makes our jobs uh, better. Do so they, they do theoretically they could, but they saying, don't. Hey, no, we got. We, um, we need to know where you, where'd you get your stuff from. I mean, is they it, ha those kinds of things have not happened, and it, it's the same thing with um, uh, needle exchange. You could theoretically say, let's just track everybody around for needle exchange. It's the only people going to needle exchange are they're not diabetics getting their insulin needles right. or other medicine vice shots. They're going there because they're shooting hardcore drugs. So that hasn't happened either. And those those were all debates when supervised. Those were all things that you know, were debated on supervised consumption facilities. Look, we had fights over, um, you know, smoking in restaurants was a huge fight, and you in know, cars and in well, tobacco. <laughs> Right. It took 10 years to ban smoking in bars after right. we, that, that my first session, 1995, that was the hottest issue. Could we ban smoking in um, restaurants? And, you know, people said it's a big health care bill. It will destroy the Maryland economy. No one will ever go out to eat again. I mean, you know how these arguments right. get spun into to these giant balls of fiction. Uh, we did it. And actually, business and restaurants went up. Right. No. So I, I understand these these. I'm just curious how the, how the details of it work because it is well, something that is possible <laughs> in Maryland. I do think that people should be aware of it because I, it it has you know when you first introduced this bill, yeah. you you were on an island, you know, like I'm. That's okay. And you know. right, which I know you that that was, that was what made you a good legislator, in my opinion, is you were always willing to be on that island. That being said, it, now this is something that's you know realistic. I'm saying there many along. there are many ideas that we accept as okay now that we're really radical at the time. Marriage equality might be another. You know, people, what are you, same-sex people getting married? You know, civilization's going to end. You know, uh, it didn't happen, and we both supported that. who you were just imitating. Voice. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of them came but, to mind, but go ahead. <laughs> I understand the challenges with putting anything new in a legislative process, but this has now been well-established, well-studied, worked in other places, yeah, when I first heard about it, I had the same reaction. What? We're going to safe places for people to shoot drugs? That's wrong. But when I studied the issue and looked at the data and saw what was happening elsewhere, I said, this makes sense. And if I'm serious about being in the legislature and being an ER doctor and seeing what I'm seeing eight months, nine months a year in the emergency room at all hours of the day and night in a big urban inner city, Baltimore ER, as well as other places, homeless clinic and so forth, then I'm, I'm going to be put that bill in. And and the bill had enough safeguards. You know, remember, when in doubt, read the bill <clears throat> beyond the concept. And I understood people's reactions, and I expected it. But in the bills and the ones that are being introduced now, there's plenty of safeguards for, for everybody else. What percent, because I think this is probably the, the thing that, that could convince, what percent of people, if you know, or what do the studies show about the number of people who kind of 
have come into these facilities and then go seek treatment? Because if all they're doing is just going for a safe place, I, I guess there's there. I do see. I understand what you're saying. There is value there, but the real value is getting them off of drugs, right? So, so like, yeah, absolutely. How does that? What, what does that look like in the places? And what what percent of those people actually end up becoming like taxpaying citizens that are off their drugs and all the rest? I don't and think you, I can answer that, you know, completely accurately. But I will. Most of the information is from a place called Insight in uh, in Canada, in Vancouver. And um, they have a much better percentage of people at least getting into some kind of treatment, even if it's methadone maintenance or buprenorphine, which at least gets them out of dealing with crime. That's, you know, besides saving their lives, not overdosing and dying, which is number one, which is our friends and family. Let's be right. honest who these people are. Number one, they stop doing their antisocial behavior because they're getting into some kind of treatment. And then a significant, that's a significant percentage, much better than otherwise because they've developed a relationship with people. This is that connection idea again. They begin to know the counselors, they know the facility, they know it's safe, they know where it is. It's open you know, most of the hours of the day and night. And then a significant percentage of those continue. But there are relapses, as there are with people sure. with asthma or other diseases, and we don't blame them. You know, Diabetic goes out and binges on a couple of donuts. We don't say, well, you're a screwed up person, we're not gonna fly? treat you. Like, oh, like, like significant percentages. Coming, so people are coming in that did not touch the system before. Right. Come in, they have a safe place to go, and then counselors are, are actually warding them and kind of weaning them into exactly. the treatment facility. Exactly. And it's, it's step one, and it's not the only thing that's going to help solve this problem, but we're in a deep, deep hole. We've um, you know, been digging for a long time. Cl look, clearly what we've been doing isn't working. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this discussion. And it's impact not only on the person who's using and their immediate circle, but the rest of us who aren't. Crime, that uh, Scott Schellenberger and Major Conway, 85, 90% of crime in the Baltimore metro area is due to drugs. You know, if you got 10 or 20 or 30% of people into treatment, that would be a big step forward. And now, obviously, there's always going to be hardcore folks at the end that need something more substantial or need, you know, the fear of incarceration or actual incarceration or other things. It's a spectrum. Right. And, uh, you know, let's just, let's catch the ones that we can get and that'll help. And then it, it decreases. Again, uh, you know, the, the fewer people that are in sub using drugs, the fewer people they're recruiting to use drugs. If you talk to enough people with substance, they got started when a friend said, hey, you know, let me, let me, let's shoot up together. I think it's an important point you just made. Like, I remember in my last, campaign, there was this, I get a phone call from somebody who said, oh my God, did you see what David Simon said about you? I'm like, who the, who the fuck is David mm -hmm. Simon? I never heard this guy's name before. And they're like, you know, the guy who produced The Wire. I'm like, yeah. I've never met anybody mm -hmm. named that before that I'm aware of. Anyway, this guy was was barking about me for some reason. Mm -hmm. He had nothing better to do, I guess, on a Saturday and was barking about me. He's a very I, talented filmmaker. Let's oh, but go a, ahead. He's a very talented <laughs> jackass. But the... Uh, so, so this guy like was railing that I wanted to put people in jail for, for using drugs. I'm like, I just decriminalized marijuana. Like, what are you talking about? Like what he was railing about was that I, I thought that people, you know, I didn't think it was particularly controversial to say that if you like shot people multiple times that you should spend some time in jail. And he, you know, like kind of in, in the new political world, like he just facts be damned decided to say that I wanted to put drug addicts in jail. Like, I, I think it's important to make the distinction be between people who are like using drugs, sell, even selling to some say, you know, the small time dealers and the people that are then going out there and shooting people, right? Like those aren't people that I think deserve 
Those are people that need to be behind bars, right? When you go and affect just, other people's lives by, by by shooting at them, those are people that need to be sitting and, there behind and, bars, in my opinion, at least. Generally, I agree with you about the violent crime. And I, in in my setting, I could talk to people and say, um, you know, tell me what crime. I mean, just would say to them, just you and me in the room, not the police. They didn't know I was in politics or cared. And I would say, tell me about the crimes you've committed. How did you do it? You know, and I heard a lot of amazing and disturbing uh, stories. And there's certainly a significant percentage of those people that for public safety need to be put away until right. they're at least 50 or 60 years old when violent tendencies tend to decrease. But, you know, this is a huge, complicated problem. We're right. doing very badly in managing it. We need to take steps along, many steps along the way. I, I think decriminalization of possession of small amount of drugs, of all drugs. I was the first state legislator in the United States to introduce that. Not because I support so substance abuse, but because so many people told me I got picked up because I had one joint, okay, marijuana is sort of off the table, but some other drug. I got that misdemeanor conviction or something like that, and a lot of these people couldn't hire you know, good lawyers. They didn't have the money. They were in the public defender system or something else, which you know more about than I do. And once they had that on their record, um, they couldn't uh, you know, get anything legitimate. Just like this guy I told you was this major dealer. And you know, you gotta look at this also, this is an international drug trade. This is a multi-trillion dollar industry. And you know, not only did you tell me about you know, the drugs coming in, he also told me how all the money got laundered. You know, people would bring, he had rooms, people, stacks of money. There are, he had, they were not from him, but from elsewhere, they had metal cases, they put the money in, they were exactly designed to fit into teller windows so they could shove the money through in cash quickly. I mean, it's a big, organized, trillion-dollar global industry that is How the rival industry. How does decriminalize that? Because you and I have had these discussions over yeah. the years. But well, for some we people, for a while, sa so. saddling them with a criminal help. criminal conviction for the way the bill worked is, look, I'm not trying to say I approve of drug use or there should be drugs on the street or drugs unavailable in stores. That's right. Let's be clear. That's not what we're talking about. But a lot of these people are younger. They've gotten into some kind of trouble, and it ruins their lives forever. So, those are so all this, this is where I would say, right now. well, now they are, but this tries to get a little ahead of the expungible offense part and say, we're going to, the way the bill worked is, by the way, you, you, you don't get off, you get an effect. You have to go to court, you, you pay a modest fine, and they push you into treatment. The second time Let's you get, Wait, be, I don't want the second to... time you get more penalty and the third time you're in the criminal justice system. That's all the time we have for today's episode of Across the Aisle podcast with Senator Bobby Zirkin. Please head to part two for more of this episode. Thank you again for listening to Across the Aisle podcast with Senator Bobby Zirkin.